Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we'll try to answer the question, how do you solve a problem like workload? But first, Chris, what's your reading for? This is uh, something like the third or fourth week in a row where you've asked me to name one thing I've been reading and partly because I've not been reading any one substantial thing, I'm going to make it seem like I have by naming more than one thing. Um, I was dipping back into a book called Basic Instincts by Pete Lunn. It's a book I've read a few times just because of how captivating it is. He is a writer about behavioral economics, famously had a bit of a -a tete-a-tete with Tim Harford, the chap who does more or less on BBC Radio 4, um, who's a bit more of a traditional economist. Um, The reason I went back to the book was because having recently read Peps McRae's Motivated Teaching, um, I realized how potentially valuable behavioral economics was when thinking about decision-making and thinking about how to make things more effective through a real grasp of people's behavior. So anyone who's interested in Peps McRae's book on motivated teaching, and I'd highly recommend that, if you want to kind of dig into a little bit more of the source material while it's whilst looking at something that's still really accessible, in other words, learn more about behavioral economics, I'd highly recommend uh, Basic Instincts by Pete Lunn. It's a really good book. Um, I also read a blog this week, which stuck with me, firstly, because it was uh, really interesting. And secondly, because it was like the least catchily titled blog I'd ever seen. Uh, Better School Improvement Through Problem-Driven Iterative Adaptation by uh, Harry Fletcher Woods. It's really just an interesting blog about how, um, if you'll excuse the expression, the best laid plans of mice and school leaders oft gan aglay. Um, it's, it talks about the importance of, or not the importance, p- potentially the efficacy of small scale responsive problem solving change rather than having these great big ideas and then trying to find a way to make them work. So I'd highly check out, I'd highly recommend checking out that blog by um, Harry Fletcher Wood, as well as the book by Pete Lunn. Uh, what about you, Kieran? What, what are you reading for this week? Um, I, I thought I'd go with something that people listening didn't need to buy because I realized that I've been talking about a lot of books recently. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd go for one of my all-time favorite articles. Um, And it's seen an exercise as a single mathematical object, you know, using variation to structure sense-making by Anne Watson and John Mason. And the reason it's one of my favorites is because of the way they structure the task that they set for the teachers in the paper. And so they want to lull these by, as far as I can tell, really proficient mathematics teachers um, into a false sense of security before the big reveal that their question sort of sequencing has um, has in store for them. Um, and, you know, every every time I go back to it, I, I find something new and interesting um, that I want, you know, avenues that I want to go down. Um, so I think it's a must read. I think it's 2006, 2007. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's one of my personal favourites. Is that the is that the taxi cab one? Yeah, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly one. Yeah, it's it, it, what you what you say is absolutely right. The way it's structured is fascinating. I'm going to sound like a proper um, 
edu geek now. I was on a um, a train in Slovakia with my partner and I was looking at this paper on my phone. Um, but this, so obviously this is, I don't have, I don't have a pen and paper to hand. This was the first time I saw it and I read it. And I thought this is quite interesting, but because I couldn't work through the actual mathematics that's contained within it, I didn't have that light bulb moment. I just thought it was quite interesting. It was only, I think it might've been you that recommended it to me later. I thought, oh, maybe I need to go back to this. And I actually did the maths that was inside it. And it's not hugely complicated maths, is it? It's really quite basic coordinate stuff. And yet you still have that moment of, realization um that they're clearly trying to nudge you towards uh, yeah so that is that's a really interesting paper I, i'm a big fan of that one as well yeah I, I had a similar experience um i read it once and then revisited with a pen and paper and it was it was a totally different experience so yeah i think they recommend you know try the maths while you're reading it i'm and 100 i'm behind that idea super so i guess for the purposes of today's discussion the best place to start would be to define what we mean by workload. Do you want to have a crack at that first, Kieran? So I think there are perhaps two ways to look at workload, because I think it's a reasonably loaded term. And I think more often than not, it's used to describe additional work on top of that which is important to teachers. But I think it could equally be described as the work that a teacher is required to complete as part of their role. Um, so when I speak about workload, it's probably that extraneous workload, you know, the additional stuff that has, for one reason or another, which obviously we'll get into at some point, I'm sure, um, being added to the what's expected of teachers in the class and outside of the class to an extent. What would you, Chris? Yeah, I think the way you describe it there, it's almost there's parallels between cognitive load theory in that the initial versions of that theory had intrinsic load, um, extraneous load, but also germane load. And we're not really talking about the germane or necessarily even the intrinsic load today. It's kind of that extraneous stuff. Um, when I think about workload, I mean, what I'm about to describe isn't necessarily extraneous. In a lot of cases, it's part and parcel of teaching. But when I think about workload and the hours of the week, I'm thinking about everything a teacher does. So the the, the, the pop, popping out to Sainsbury's to get yeast for the science experiment, that's workload. There was a member of um, the senior leadership team at my, I think it was first or second job, who said that marking in front of the television wasn't really work. You know, if you took your books home, you could mark in front of the television and it just didn't count. It just wasn't work. Whereas, I mean, as someone who's never really enjoyed television enough to just sit and watch something that I can do at the same time as something else, um, I found that preposterous. But that sort of thing, that is also workload. I think anything that takes up time, even if you can do the washing up at the same time, if it takes up your time and you are still in teacher mode in that teacher frame of mind, then that is workload. But yeah, I think if we focus sort of our, the rest of this discussion on that extraneous workload, the stuff that we think, yeah, maybe that doesn't need to be there, then we might have a relatively productive conversation, I hope. Nice. So I suppose the first question then is, why is extraneous workload an issue? I mean, the answer to this, it seems fairly obvious, but I think it's worth stating that um, life is short. <laughs> is that a good enough answer? But life is short. 
and time wasted, whether it's in the in a, a, a profession like teaching or any other profession is a shame. In the end, time is our only commodity and or at least our only worth truly worthwhile commodity. And time wasted in teaching or anywhere else is a shame. Unless I'm mistaken, I think the statistics are that it's about a third of teachers leave in the first five years, leave the profession that is. And you have to assume that workload plays a, a significant role in it. I know that behavior is commonly cited as well. But again, I don't think those things are disconnected. So for example, I am much more readily equipped to deal with the challenging behavior of a student or a group of students when I've been working a reasonable week and when I'm well rested. To the best of my recollection, I think that the most recent surveys on teacher workload suggest that teachers are working on average around 49 hours a week. And that's average. So you're going to have people working 45 or 40 hours at one end and then 50, 55, 60 at the other. So I think anyone with a reasonable idea of what a decent work-life balance is would think that extraneous workload is a problem purely for that reason. I mean, the last thing I'd say is that, I mean, every bit of energy and time that we dedicate to stuff that obviously doesn't have an impact is even in the pure aspect of just looking at teaching is time that we're not putting into professional development that we're not. And again, outside of that, that we're not engaging in hobbies and spending time with our families. And I guess, the, oh yeah, one more thing, pointless work is demotivating. I mean, even if you only worked like 30 hours a week, I think if 15 hours a week of it just felt pointless, you would still feel ground down by your job. It's that pointless aspect of uh, work that's almost as important as the sheer amount of it. What about you? What do you think? So I, I fully agree with the, the, the points you've covered. Um, what I'd add is that, you know, anyone who's familiar with any of my talks or any of the stuff that I say online will know that I'm a big believer in the cognitive challenge of teaching. And it's one of the reasons that I'm a teacher is because I want to be challenged cognitively you know, on a daily basis. And when I talk about the mental models, the instantaneous decision-making and all the things that are really enjoyable to develop in our, in our craft, if you're exhausted, you know, because you're marking books to 11 PM and then you're up again at six, you're not going to be able to do any of that stuff. You know, you are, you're going to be on autopilot. Like I can feel a difference between eight hours sleep and six hours sleep. You know, and those days where I have less sleep, I will just be trying to get to the end of the day as quickly as possible um, so that I can get to bed and then recharge for the, and try again the next day. And I think um, it, it's almost, that's, that's almost like an extreme version of what I think happens because like I say, if we're, if, if, you, if we're tired from, and as you said, meaningless activities or things that are unnecessary, then you're you're not getting the best version of us, you know. We're we're, we're not going to be able to perform to the to the standard that we both hope and that our children deserve. And and so, I think that it's 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 essential that we try and control for that, so that we can have the absolute, you know, best teachers in peak performance. Something that comes alongside that is 
that sometimes we're our worst own worst enemy. I think that there is a, a perception within the profession that we need to be working long hours to justify what we're doing. I mean, it's worth noting, I'm probably going to get myself in a little bit of trouble with people who have similar roles or to that which I've had recently, in that when I was a classroom teacher and I was face-to-face -face with a challenging class for significant period of the day, and then I was working long hours on top of that, that was a whole different business to working those same hours where I had was largely in control of what I was doing through the day. I could go to the toilet whenever I wanted to. I could have a biscuit whenever I fancied it. It's a whole different business to have long hours at the same time as having a significant chunk of those hours being face on with um, a group of people where you are responsible for their safety, where you are responsible for their learning. And I think, yeah, we have to take those things into account as well, as well when we're looking at the hours spent. Um, and like I say, I think we are perhaps our own worst enemy in that there is arguably a bit of a martyr or hero complex in the profession. Would you agree? And if so, do you think it's a problem? I think it, it does pervade the profession. Um... I was actually discussing this um, a few weeks ago, and there was a, a survey of teachers' favourite education movies. And, of course, you've got things like Dead Poet Society, you know, um, where, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a healthy model of what education is like. And I think a lot of that is to do with the the liminality that teachers experience when they join the profession. Because if the sources upon which we can draw are cinema and our own experience of school, you know, then we're, we're not necessarily ready to make a judgment on what a healthy teacher approach to the role or workload in particular looks like. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously over the last 20 or so years, the system hasn't necessarily helped that at all. Um, and it's almost compounded it to an extent where because those who put in extra time doing things like triple marking were rewarded with grades or, you know, external recognition, then it became the thing that had to be done, you know? And I think now we're, in a, we're almost in a better position and I think the tide seems to be turning. Um, but something like that, that pervades a whole consciousness, you know, a collective consciousness, doesn't just disappear overnight. And so I think it's a combination of liminality and systemic forces over the last 20 or so years. What about you, Chris? Are you familiar with it? Yeah, a lot of what you say does ring a bell with me. I think part of the problem as well, and I'm as great an exponent of this as anyone, is that teachers can be a little self-congratulatory when it comes to our own importance. 
Um, and that's understandable. Teaching is obviously a very important profession. We perform a very important role within society. I think there's a tendency for this to lead to a bit of an arms race between teachers when it comes to talking about workload. I'd love to experiment on Twitter with a message like, I've been, um, I, I was marking until 10 o'clock last night because I'm pretty certain that you would see people very quickly responded with, oh, I was up till 11 or I was up till 12 or I was up till two. There's an element of that old Monty Python sketch about the Yorkshireman. Um, and yeah, I think there's a sense of teaching and that the teacher mythology that we have that is linked to government adverts, things like change your life or make a difference. And again, I appreciate where all this stuff is coming from, but I think we sometimes don't see the negative side of placing this pressure on people. Because in the end, if you're looking at a pile of books or something that you're doing in your job that's, you know, likely to have a little bit of impact, perhaps, and you're thinking to yourself, well, actually, I'd quite like to just have a magnum and watch some TV. How do you justify having a break with an ice cream in front of the telly if we believe that every little thing that we do as a teacher has this dramatic impact on children's lives. It's almost impossible. Sometimes the fact that we dwell understandably on our own importance as a profession can lead to negative outcomes. The reality is, and I'm, I'm not sure I should say this, but I'm going to, the reality is that I think that about 90% of kids that we teach will have forgotten our names within a decade. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a, a major impact and that we shouldn't um, take our job seriously, but it does mean we should probably have a little bit of perspective about what it is we do achieve, which is sometimes, I think, perhaps lacking from the profession. Yeah. In short, if you convince yourself that your job is incredibly important, it's easy to justify working 55 or 60 hours a week. Yeah, um, as, you're, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about any of the stresses in my job at the minute. Because um, I, I guess I'm quite, quite fortunate in terms of the workload is mine to set to an extent. You know, I've been given a brief, go and achieve that brief, you know, by any means you feel necessary. Um, so I don't have external forces saying do this, do that. But any pressure or disappointment I felt has been because of how I wanted to go further or I wanted something to be a little bit more perfect than what it was and and I can see traces of that as I think back on my career you know because like we, we've said before that when you begin teaching it is a lot more work and you have to put in considerably more effort into things that more expert teachers find find reasonably trivial and um, and what I find difficult is letting go of the need to the point where I almost feel like I'm not working enough sometimes and then give myself a hard time for it and I don't know how I can let go of that because I know that the job I'm doing is at least adequate you know because my employers still want me around and stuff and um, you know so I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm definitely not a trained psychologist, so I'm probably definitely not qualified to <laughs> to comment. And um, but but I'm just thinking about what you're saying about this self-image that we have, and how realistic it is that 
we can let go because if I think about my own behavior and my own thoughts, you know, it, it does take an awful lot of effort on my part to give myself a break, if that makes sense, you know. Um, and I'm almost feeling upset. I'm not, I'm not trying to set, set myself up like a martyr here. It's just a pattern of behavior that has built up over many, many years. And when the opportunity does come to decant a little, it's a, it's a lot tougher than you than you might think. Um, you know, certainly the first couple of days of the summer holidays are tough because I want to feel like I'm achieving something. Um, yeah, so I think I think that that might be the key. How do how do we <laughs> switch off that voice that says we need to work harder than <laughs> all the time? You know, in some cases, I think we need someone else to be that voice for us, particularly at the start of our career. I wish in retrospect, I've talked before um, about the issues I had at the start of my career in terms of working too long and then eventually kind of leaving the profession for a bit or sort of leaving classroom teaching for a bit. And I wish that when it had on, when I'd had those conversations with people and I talked about how long hours I've been working, I wish someone in the profession had just said to me, that's a bit of a disappointment. You uh, you're overdoing it, mate. Or even just saying like, well, that's a shame. There are teachers here who can get the job done in far fewer hours than you're doing. So just just turn it on its head. Just saying, oh, yeah, there's people here much more efficient than that would would have completely changed my mindset about when I'm when I'm going to go home. Funnily enough, this kind of comes full circle almost back to uh, the discussion of behavioral economics that I briefly introduced earlier, because there is a lot about races to the bottom in behavioral economics the classic one being the idea of two people who are after a promotion where one of them stays till 5 30 so the other person stays till 6 to, so the boss sees them and then the other person stays till 6 30 or 7 etc and it's only when the boss steps in and says no you both leave at 5 or you both leave at 5 30 or whatever it is that the problem solved you sometimes need these um external regulations in some form in my experience, not always, but often the people who have the healthiest and most accurate view of the importance of teaching and its balance with other aspects of life are parents. Some of the people I've worked with who have a, a newborn kid or they've got a kid, two or three kids or whatever, they still take their job seriously. They're still professional. They're still doing a great job. But there's something in there, the way they talk about, well, you know, I've got to get home because I've got other responsibilities that I think helps remind me and perhaps would help remind other teachers that, yeah, there's there are other aspects to life. There, there is a balance here. It isn't just you pour as much energy as you can into the job and that's as, that's it. So I, I think that, that leads quite nicely into the next question. How can we alleviate workload for those that we lead? I think it's an obvious thing to say, but a key aspect of this for me, and I know it's popular on Twitter and I know it's a common conversation, but it has to be front and center is marking. I'm not as necessarily as 100% anti-marking as other people are. I, I definitely think that there is a way to engage with it. I, I don't actually think that there's a huge amount of value of writing things in books that can just be shared back. But at the same time, I don't think 
there's necessarily anything wrong with making sure you've looked at every book and occasionally putting a tick or a star or whatever just to say, I've seen this, like this a lot. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. And there's actually quite a lot of positives, I think, to children knowing that teachers are looking at what they're doing. That said, the hours that are devoted to marking by many in the profession are a travesty. And more often than not, it's down to systemic pressures. I'd like to say, it'd be dead easy to say, yeah, it's school leaders, you know, bowing down to pressure. And I guess that there's truth in that, but we also have to ask the question of where that pressure is coming from. And is that pressure the same on every set of school leaders? If you're a head teacher in a school that has had requires improvement three times in a row, seemingly as far as you can tell, through no fault of your own or your teachers uh, or your teachers who are doing everything they can, and you just want to have this overt symbol of look we're trying <laughs> we are working hard and we are conscientious then immaculate books full of marking are a pretty sound way to do that i'd love to pretend that all ofsted inspectors would see past that but my experience of ofsteds admittedly from on the old framework but my experiences of them haven't necessarily been um of such a, an ilk as to make me think that those impressions don't matter so it's very easy for me to say oh yeah senior leaders should just get rid of marking but in reality um it's often easier said than done but obviously that's a big area if you can do it if you're into the circumstances where you can reduce it considerably and make it less burdensome to consider whole class feedback consider a way of giving feedback to children that doesn't require writing notes to them one-to-one -one. if you think about it it's mad really though isn't it the idea of saying i've got 30 children i've done a lesson with them now what's the most efficient way of talking with them communicating with them about what they have and haven't achieved i know i will write to them individually when you put it in those terms it's just <laughs> who thought of that how, how did we do that for years? I spent hundreds of hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours marking. Yeah, sorry, I, I made myself giggle a little bit there. That's, that's, that's not acceptable. Um, beyond marking, I think there's a lot of paperwork that relates to accountability that is largely unnecessary or can be unnecessary. And often it just grows. Usually it's the case that someone who is setting the paperwork is the person who doesn't have to do the paperwork. And I think having, when, when any form of paperwork, be it, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, the kind of uh, paperwork that you might do to evidence what you are going to achieve to meet your appraisal targets, that sort of thing. I worked at a school where I was told that Oh, well, to save time, what you can do is just go onto this handy website where we've given you a log on every week or twice a week and just upload some evidence of what you're doing to achieve your appraisal targets. And for the rest of the year, I spent time thinking, how can I set targets for myself next year that I won't be able to evidence? <laughs> because I knew that that was what I was going to have to do. And the point that I'll make here is that these targets come about because they're so often set by people who aren't going to have to jump through those hoops. So a basic sense of empathy, asking teachers persistently, 
is this creating unnecessary work workload and then giving them the freedom to say well yeah i think it is actually i think there's a shorter version to this or i don't think this is worthwhile um what do you reckon what are your key things for alleviating workload so when i think of this question i think of those of us who are working on a strategic level and trying to implement change you know on a school on a school-wide level and um, because quite often that will come from one person thinking about how a subject or an aspect of school life moves forward and i think it, it's it's essential but how we think about it will differ um, in those schools where workload concerns are appreciated and those where they're not necessarily top of the agenda. Um, and so to do that, I will think, you know, if, if we're thinking about policy, what is the research base for the decision we're about to make? You know, for instance, if we're looking at a marketing and feedback policy, well, you would go to those papers that highlight the distinction between marking and feedback. Because then what you could very easily do is put a system in place where feedback is front and center of the behaviors you want to see um, in, your, in your school, if that makes sense. Um, you know, and equally, the expectations on things like, you know, if we want to introduce retrieval practice into our schools, if we designate a certain amount of time and a certain format, we need to consider whether or not that's A, what the research shows us, and B, what impact is that going to have? You know, because I think as a profession, we've got a group of best bets for the things that will make a difference to our pupils. And what we really need to do is try and utilize those at the expense of things which have been shown or have failed to show their importance or their relevance to our practice. And so from, from my position, if I'm thinking about change, if I'm thinking about policy, I'm thinking about, well, what sort of backing does this decision have and what sort of impact is it going to have on workload? And um, one thing that, you know, and I, I know Neil Allman talks about it quite a lot is when you put something in to the system, you need to be taking something out at the same time. You know, you've almost got this equilibrium that cannot be um, tampered with because it's very easy to add things because, you know, and if, if we're not doing certain things that, that might prove beneficial, and, um, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. But before we know it, if we're not careful, we will have um, a disequilibrium. Um, and that's where, and that sort of manifests as workload. And um, so I'm always thinking about, well, what do we stop doing so that we can do this? Um, and I think my final one, you know, certainly for, for this episode, is to have like you said, those people in the classroom at the heart of any important decision-making process. And I'm not saying they should um, they should lead it, 
but they should definitely be involved on a level of actually what does this look like when we implement it and what is the impact on teachers because it would be very easy for me you know especially at the minute where it's hard to get into classes to make massive sweeping decisions about the practice of our teachers without having any consultation with them at all but that would do the pupils no good and it would do the teachers no good and so i know it's been a while since you know maybe four or five years since i've had a a full class responsibility but i always try to make sure i'm thinking like that and talking to teachers you know particularly those who are receptive to new ideas because they're going to give you an honest account of okay i'd really love to give this a go but i can't see that happening without x y and z changing you know and um, you know jack who was on season one lucky enough to work with him if i've got a new idea I will talk to him about what he thinks that will look like with the practicalities on a, on a logistical level, because that way we are taking account of the reality of the situation. And so those are the three things that I try to do in my practice, because having lived through the time of Ofsted once and having missed weekends with family because of, you know, mar having to catch up on marking that no one was ever going to read. Um, I understand precisely what I want to try and avoid. And so I know that the further we get from the classroom, the more important it is to try and remember. Um, but that feeling of spending time that could have been with family on something that I didn't think was important will never, will never leave me. You know, I will always have that sense of, I really wish I'd had the guts to say, this is pointless, you know, but the thing is, it wouldn't have done me any good. It wouldn't have done the school any good because of the system that we existed in at the, at the time, you know, so it was just get on with it. And, you know, but now I'm in my mid thirties. Had I joined teaching now, would I, would I have accepted that reality? I'm, I'm not sure because it's something that I have never been able to, to shake. I like to think that if a teacher came to me or just it or just dropped into conversation that they were working stupidly long hours, that my first response would in my head would be, oh, I'm failing. On some level, I'm failing. If someone that is uh, that I have some level of responsibility for guiding them in their career is working stupidly long hours, then I'm failing if I'm not supporting them to work a more reasonable um, amount. I bang on about it a lot, um, but I do think that a 45-hour working week is a sensible target. I don't think there's anyone out there who would say, oh, that's, that's lazy. And equally, I don't think there's any teacher out there who would say, well, that's far too much. So I think it's kind of a pretty solid, you know, compromise position that will keep everyone happy, including that little guilty conscience that we all um, seem to have in the profession. I think there are a couple of other practical things I'd like to mention about things like NQTs, having um, having running clubs. I was told in my first year of teaching, no, you don't run a club as an NQT because it's going to be hard enough. And, I, and I've seen and I've worked in schools where there's pressure on NQTs to do clubs, to run a football club or to do a sewing club. And you just think, no, let them bed in. 
I would say that also planning and the way that expectations for planning are managed within a school are important. I think if someone is prepared for the lesson, they've thought it through, they've written down what they need to have written down to have thought it through and to teach the lesson well, then I'm happy. Anything that goes beyond that and only goes beyond that for show or because of a particular structure that the school require everyone to plan in, then I think we've got problems. That's not to say that some structures can't be useful, particularly to newish teachers, sometimes having a planning pro forma and saying, OK, can you con consider these things is fine. But in the end, it has to all work towards them being ready for the lesson. And if they're ready for the lesson, then I'm not particularly interested in the plan. There's so many times when I've seen experienced teachers or teachers doing a perfectly good job still putting things on a plan that are unnecessary and when you ask them why it's because it's just expected it's just what we do at this school or even worse as still occasionally happens you hear about it planning's being collected in to be scrutinized really for everyone it just doesn't make sense to me last thing i'll mention is things like maybe because this is just close to my heart and it's what i'm doing at the moment but when it comes to curriculum when it comes to teaching your history lessons and your geography lessons and your music lessons and everything you're teaching, the more that teachers can be supported in the detail of the what they're going to teach and the less they have to go to Twinkle, the less they have to watch things on YouTube, the less they have to go to Google, the better. Now, this isn't to say that teachers shouldn't be given the time to develop their understanding of things they're going to teach. Of course they should. But, but that doesn't that shouldn't replace a quality curriculum resource that says, well, you know what, if you're teaching Roman Britain, 80% of what you should be communicating to the children and trying to get them to understand is on this document. So yeah, I would say that those are just some brief things to mention, but really all of them pale in my experience in comparison to the burdens that, that are effectively different forms of paperwork, uh, be it marking, or accountability bits and pieces. So yeah, if in doubt, that's your target, I think, as senior leaders. It's, it's funny you mention um, planning because it didn't even cross my mind. We've been using textbooks so long that um, when I think of planning, I think of having post-it notes and thinking about worked examples that I can use to you know, sort of supplement the examples that are in the book. You know, oh, if, if they struggle with this bit, here are some questions I can ask, you know, and um, it's been a long time since I actually sat down with a, with a, a Microsoft Word <laughs> format and, and wrote out what's to be taught. And um, yeah, so yeah, that, that, that's a big one. And, um, but it's also one of the reasons why I'm such a staunch advocate of, <laughs> of the high quality textbook, because then, you know, you, you will eventually get to the stage where you can't remember a time where you had to plan out everything in the curriculum in order and hope that it was the right order. <laughs> and this is, dare I say, a slightly, for those secondary school teachers that are listening, my partner's been a secondary maths teacher for going on for a decade. And she'll talk to me about lessons, which she says, oh, I don't need to plan as such for that. I just, I just know, I know the beats of that lesson. It's like I'm following a script that's in my mind. I know the misconceptions that children are likely to have. I know where it's likely to go wrong. I know where to take it if they understand it, if they grasp it quite quickly. And it's just all there. 
I think as a primary teacher, particularly a primary teacher who moves between year groups, it's easy to forget that actually the just the the vast array of what we teach can be massive. I mean, if you teach an element of fractions in year eight, once you've taught it three or four times, you know where it's going. Whereas with primary, you can move between lessons and teach some, uh, move between year groups, I should say, and be teaching Vikings for the first time, or the curriculum can change and you're teaching mountains for the first time, which I think puts a responsibility on curriculum leaders and on schools to wherever possible to give teachers as much information as they can. So like I say, they're not hunting around elsewhere. So we've talked about the responsibility that we have to alleviate unnecessary or extraneous workload for those teachers that we're trying to support. I guess the other question then is, what can we do to alleviate our own workload, Be, whether we're a teacher or a senior leader or even a head teacher? What, what kind of things might we be able to do to alleviate our own workload? What do you reckon? So when I think about this one, I think whatever I say will be easier said than done. Um, you know, inevitably, because we all want to do the best job we possibly can. And sometimes that, like we've said, that feels like having to go above and beyond. Um, but I think there are some principles that we can work to. I think it, it might be Mark Anson that talks about this, but asking yourself which stuff is genuinely important and then only doing that. And that's probably the most difficult one to do um, because, you know, there will be pressures to do things. But I know that in tandem with that, if people don't ask me multiple times for things that I haven't done, then there's a very good chance I'm never going to do them. You know, like I said, it doesn't apply at the minute, but whenever I was in class, whoever shouted the loudest, got their stuff done for them, you know, whatever task was constantly, we were constantly reminded about, that got done. Um, and I think almost combining the two and thinking, okay, well, what's the consequence of not doing this? And what's the consequence or what's the benefit of doing this? And then sort of almost making a, a prioritization list, you know, where you've got the things that you simply must do because there's a benefit and then as you go further down the list, you are getting towards things that, um, you know, people aren't shouting about, things you don't find value in, which is obviously very subjective. Um, but ultimately, we can't do everything we want to do. So we do have to prioritize things. You know, I, I've, I don't think I've ever finished a to-do list. You know, I will section things off into this is Monday um, and, and perhaps finish the things I've assigned for Monday. Um, so, I, yeah, so I think we have to get good at prioritizing and good at realizing the things that make a difference. And, and we do that by sort of working, um, you know, and, and reflecting on our processes, you know, over an extended number of years. Um, I think honest conversations with school leaders often, often land. Um, you know, certainly the school leaders I work with are very receptive to the opinions of their of their teachers. Um, and when there are concerns um, about the impact of, uh, of something that's been introduced, you know, they're very much listened to. And um, so I think we should always consider 
and that the people who are leading us have also quite often been teachers, often will understand what it's like to be in that situation um, and will respect the the capacity, you know, to be to be honest about the about the realities of the situation, because ultimately everybody everybody in the school wants the school to be doing the, the, the absolute best job it can. And I think the last thing that I would do, and this is something I talk about all the time, is I would reflect on our actual significance um, and whether or not it's more important that we are healthy and refreshed or if a piece of work is finished. And then I would always prioritize health um, and mental well-being over paperwork, you know, because the paperwork can be done at some point. And, you know, but if you lose your health to unhealthy habits, you know, even if they're brought on by yourself, then it's much more difficult to get back to the place you were. And, you know, so that's that's where I, that's what I would do. Um, but like I say, easier said than done in each of those cases. <laughs> what about you, Chris? Well, yeah, along the lines of easier said than done, I'm going to say some stuff that's going to infuriate some people, no doubt, because they'll say, well, yeah, I wish. But I'm going to say it anyway, because some of the stuff I think is good advice, uh, or at least stuff that I wish I'd heard at points in my career. The first of which is find a school that genuinely cares about your workload if you're not in one. Sounds obvious, sounds easier, obviously easier said than done. But if you can, if you're if you can move and you're in a school that you think doesn't really take workload seriously, then try and find one that does. Along those lines, I would say count your count your hours as an experiment. Take a week or two or three and count your hours and work out what you are actually working through a week and be really honest with yourself about what that is. And if it is more than you think is reasonable, then start thinking about what you can cut. Like you say, in an ideal world, we would be, um, what's the phrase from economics? Homo economicus. And we'd make perfectly rational decisions whereby we would be able to put a long list of tasks and exactly how, and we'd know exactly how long we expected those tasks to last. And then when we got down to the 45 hour mark or whatever it is, we just cut it off and not do anything on the bottom of that list. That's not how human beings work. But even so, keeping a track of your working hours through a week, just so you've just got a feel of whether what you're working is reasonable or not, can be informative. It can be illuminating. On the other side of things where I do think there are a lot of teachers who are their own worst enemy with this stuff and actually senior leaders aren't pushing them quite as hard as they say they are. It's actually more about their own personal sense of conscientiousness. I think there's value in learning to say no to stuff like, oh, can you do this event on a Friday? I know it's at six. Sometimes saying no is it's just what you've got to do. So yeah, like I say, count your hours, try and find a school that genuinely values this stuff. We've talked about marking, so I'm not going to go deeper into that. Try and cut out the stuff that you do, if you're really honest with yourself, just to impress other people or to keep up with other people. If you don't think your displays are quite as pretty as the classroom next door, and deep down you don't care that they're that 
they're as pretty, then don't do anything about it. Just make them fine. Just do the, if find the areas where you're really comfortable just doing the bare minimum. And at the same time, don't give a hard time to the teacher next door who does value that stuff and does like to make their classroom particularly beautiful. Just, just let them get on with it. Unless they say to you, they're working 55 hours a week, at which point maybe it's time to have a conversation. Practically, particularly in your first few years of teaching, but generally I think it's worth setting yourself a target every week of saying there is one day a week where I don't do any schoolwork and I don't think about schoolwork. I mean, I've not followed this rule myself for a long time, but purely because of it being a hobby. I guess the last thing would be don't begrudge colleagues that do somehow manage to leave at 4.30 every day. In fact, perhaps go and have a conversation with them and ask them how they do it. And Oh, yeah. One last thing, actually. A lot of people, I think, throw themselves into massive amounts of workload because they think I want to climb up the career ladder. And the way to do that is to impress and to be as overtly conscientious as I can be, et cetera, et cetera. And I've never really understood that because as far as I can tell, unless you're looking to be chief inspector of Ofsted, the career ladder is pretty short. You teach for a while and then if you quite like the idea, you maybe become head of a phase and then look for assistant and then deputy head roles and then you're a head teacher. And then you've got 20 years of being a head teacher and then you look back and think, I wish I'd spent a bit more time in the classroom, potentially. So I think the career ladder in teaching is pretty short. So don't be afraid to slow down, ease off, maybe just enjoy being a teacher for five or 10 years before you start thinking, okay, it's time for me to be an assistant head or it's time for me to start looking up that career ladder. But I'm bound to say that because I, you know, I think the classroom teaching bit is always the best bit of being in education. So I'm probably a bit biased. But yeah, that would be everything I'd have to say on the subject. Hope that's okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, Chris. Um, I think before we wrap things up, it's I think it's important to qualify the conversation in as much as it's very easy for the two of us to have this conversation in these terms because we've been teaching 13, 14 years each and we have come to certain realizations and certain levels of confidence in our own sort of capability. Um, and so for anyone who is listening and they're at the beginning of their career or they, they want to develop into the most proficient teacher they can be, I think what you say about um, about in the classroom being the, the 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 utmost priority. I think we focus our attention on what we can do to be a better teacher of children, and then the other stuff, you know, is what will come over time. And I think it is possible to you know people always say get a feel for the school whenever you go and visit. You know, and hopefully as time goes on, we'll be able to visit schools before we apply for them. Ask, you know, what was the workload expectation of your of your teachers during the, the pandemic? What is the workload expectation of your teachers now? Because, and it's Alan and Sims, they, they, they use the, the term lemon, you know, in to discuss those schools where they're not as oh fair with how to get the best from their teachers and so to avoid those lemons and um, we need to ask honest questions and hopefully receive honest answers when we apply and when we begin the application process and um, 
I think that's the best way to safeguard ourselves from those unfortunate situations where teacher well-being isn't as high a priority. And, you know, so like I say, it's very easy for us to have this conversation in terms we've had it. But yeah, but it is possible to enjoy every minute of teaching, but for it not to be a minute past 45 hours each week. (laughs) And, And so I think I'm almost springing this one on you. It's a question from YouTube, Chris, that we got quite a while ago that I have been thinking about and thought this would be the best place to do it. Um, Early career teacher, what one book would you recommend they read? I think ideally you want a book that leads to other places as well as being really valuable in itself. I'd highly recommend um, a book. I think it's just called like Intrig- it's Marge, M-A-R-G-E. Um, it's a book that looks at different aspects of learning from motivation to generative learning. And like I say, because of that, it leads in different directions. By Arthur Shimamura, it is, I hope I've pronounced that right. I almost certainly haven't. It's really an excellent jumping off point. I, I found it fascinating. It was a one of the, another one of those books that I ordered. It's actually available free as an ebook as well. So in your following in your footsteps of trying to recommend something that's freely available, highly recommend that one. It's a short read and I think it's a really great jumping off point for teachers. My, my recommendation falls into a similar category and it's What Does This Look Like in the Classroom by Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson. And essentially they take a, a list of questions that have been generated by practicing teachers and give them to some of the most erudite um, sort of experts in various fields related to teaching and learning and, and education in general. Um, and, you know, we have several copies in my school's CPD libraries and, you know, not a term goes by where I'm not recommended to someone. Um, and I think, as you say, it's a really good jumping in point on many of the, the most important facets of our, of our role and, and something that, you know, I can't really recommend enough um, in terms of early career development in particular, but I think suitable for, for anyone who's teaching really. Can I just add one caveat to what I said? Because I still fully recommend the book that I suggested. But if you are a teacher who is struggling with behavior, which is quite a common thing for teachers at the start of their career, I'm sure I've recommended it before. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's a little booklet called The Behavior Management Pocketbook by, I think it's Peter Hook. Um, I saw a CPD session by him in my NQT year, which changed how I manage behavior with my class and allowed me to develop completely different relationships with children that I never thought I would be able to make an impact with. So yeah, Peter Hook's behavior management pocketbook. It just, I've never seen it mentioned by anyone else on Twitter or elsewhere. And it astounds me because it's so good. Excellent. So I think that's, that's plenty to get on with for anyone at the beginning of their end of their you know teacher development journey and and i suppose on that note all that's left to do is say thank you very much christopher for joining me again my pleasure until next time thanks for listening